welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello, welcome to Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. Today on the show, I have Chad Davis of Live CA. I brought Chad on the show because many companies are currently dealing with the stresses of figuring out how to adopt the remote work environment. And Chad and his company have literally done remote work since inception. I thought, who better to bring on to discuss the stages and how to adapt to the changing needs of a business and how to enable remote work within that business. And with that, here's my interview with Chad. Good morning, Chad. Morning, Jason. How are you doing? Uh, very good. It's good to chat with you again. Good. So, Chad, thanks for coming on. This is not a financial planning conversation, but more so a this is of key importance to business owners at this time and place in history right now. And we're basically going to address the subject of remote work. Now, there's a lot of companies scrambling out there to try to understand how they enable the remote workforce because they've never done so before. Or maybe they've done a couple of tools, but not the entire thing. And I thought it best to bring you on, given that your background is that your firm's always been virtual, essentially, and always been remote. And not only that, but you have, as you've grown, faced a number of different challenges that have made you reframe and evolve the process. So I thought that your journey was absolutely invaluable to share with business owners who are now being forced to go through similar journeys. So uh, thanks for taking the time to do that, first off. Yeah, thanks for having me. And to, to caveat that one, I really like to share our experience because by no means have we figured anything out, but we figured out what sort of worked for us at different intervals and then learned from it and then changed and then learned from it again. And we're still in this learning phase right now. So yeah, that's called no life, Chad. It. That's called that. That's called life. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> second you stop learning is the second you stop dying. Either as a business or as an, as an individual, whatever you want to look at it. So anyway, so let's um, let's get started. So tell us first and foremost about who you are and your company. Sure. So Live CA uh, is the company you had uh, my co-founder and uh, business partner there, Josh Swag, on there on your on your show a little while ago. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having him on. We are a CPA firm that started out as being remote first back in 2013, with nothing more than the goal of just being able to work from home and travel a little bit. That's changed over the years into a company where accountants that wanted to try this lifestyle out could join us. And now we get to work with some really interesting companies with some really great employees and team members. And we're trying to deliver services in a way that are calm and enjoyable for both employees and for the people we're working for, our customers. And it's harder said than done. So that's what uh, hopefully we can talk about today. Absolutely. So a couple of things we want to get started with. You, you've given me a quite the guidance document to go through. And we're going to make sure we have some of the more salient points. So before you get started, there's a couple of things you said that are like caveats that you wanted to hit upon. Uh, and there's a uh, one in particular that popped out to me. And that's, you know, the regulation aspect. As a CPA firm, you're regulated. And when this first started, that must have been an obstacle. Can you can you speak to that? And the reason I want to say that is because especially in my industry, one of the big obstacles, one of the big pushbacks I get is, well, I don't think the regulators are going to accept this or we have regulation or whatever it is. Talk to me about how you dealt with those hurdles when you kind of set off on this journey. Sure. So CPA Canada and CPA Ontario were our uh, original governing bodies, and they oversee all of the code of conducts, uh, regulations and rules around operating as a CPA firm. Deep in the code of conduct was a statement that said, you must have a physical office in order to uh -huh. have a CPA firm. So we knew that going in, that if we didn't have a physical office, 
not even a placard almost, we would have a hard time. So we used a lawyer's office to have a physical address and went to CPA Canada and said, this is how we'd like to operate. This is how we think firms would like to operate in the future. Would you like to work with us and help change these rules? Fast forward three years later, many, many meetings with Josh and the regulators, lots of emails back and forth, and we're the first virtual approved and regulated CPA firm in Canada. And that was back roughly in 2015-ish, 15-16. I mean, I see the same obstacles in my industry because there are those similar provisions, which when you think about that regulation gets stale if you don't update it. <laughs> and I could definitely track that up as currently being stale. So let's let's start off by talking about your journey in general. So you started off, you guys wanted to travel and 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 work as CPAs and you started a company. Tell me about how you enabled early work in the in the early days. <laughs> so how we enabled work was our value prop to accountants was let's use some online tools. You can work from home. And let's see where this thing takes us. So we were incredibly small. I think mm. for the first uh, first year, there was maybe maybe five employees or so. And we were absolutely uneducated when it came to running a firm, structuring work, figuring out what tools to use. And that was awesome because we got to make lots of mistakes, but we also got to try things. And mm -hmm. part of trying things was meeting customers that were also wanting to try things with their accounting firms. Ergo meeting you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, maybe you, I think that remember around stage one, stage two. I can't remember if you guys were at four or at eight people by the time I contacted yeah, you. Yeah, that's right. Do you remember the year that you, we started working together? Oh, man. I got whatever year I transitioned to zero. So I got to look that up. But uh, yeah, it was a while that's back. Yeah. yeah, that's funny. So, I mean, how we enabled work was we had like Google apps, we had the Slack predecessors like Flowdoc, we had no servers. So we used things like ShareFile back in the day. We had no real project management system other than the one that came with Zero called Zero Practice Manager. But we were using Asana because it also allowed us to do stuff online. You know what I mean? Like, so we're just kind of putting things together that we thought would work, all while figuring out how to hire, how to you know, make people happy with their services. And the mistakes that we made were humongous. We took on clients that we clearly underpriced. We did more work than made it profitable. And, you know, we were just lucky that people said, yes, let's try this out with you in the early days. So yeah, complete mess. But in fairness, that's every new business, right? You don't know <laughs> how to true. price. You don't know how to do things. Like you have the artist's dilemma, right? You know, it's just because you're a good artist doesn't mean you're a good salesperson. Most of them die starving and you have to learn the business of art, just like, and that applies to every, every enterprise, right? You knew the practice of accounting. You just didn't know how to run a business of accounting. And I too found myself in that similar situation early on in my career. It's like, oh boy, I actually don't know how to run a business doing this. This is crazy. And let's go back to your solutions that you picked. Cause you, there's, you mentioned a bunch of very simple off the shelf ones that back then, there wasn't a lot of remote work enablement. There was a lot of online cloud tools coming out, but not a lot of remote work enablement like there is now. So there's a lot more interconnection between things and, and integrations than there were before, making it easier. So if anything, people starting now are in a much stronger position than, than those of us back then when we were starting. Now, one of the things I want to hit upon here is you mentioned about like four or five different vendors. How much did it cost you per person to just implement one of these solutions? It didn't matter. And we probably didn't care. We would pick an app because it made sense and we yeah. wanted to try it. And I think that's one of the philosophies that 
guided us through even till today. Now we're at 70 people. So when you want to have a per user cost, there's a true math calculation that you have to go through yeah. uh, along with switching costs and all of the other intangibles that go along with, with putting something in at a bigger size. <clears throat> but in the beginning, I don't think we ever said no to an app because it was expensive. In fact, That's I remember this one. Expensive. I mean, that's yeah. one of the points well, I'm getting at is like, you can try any of these things for less than probably 50 bucks per month. Like just yeah. like peanuts, peanuts, right? So the experience, the cost of failure on a software in the consumer world is almost, it's borderline non-existent. Some of these things can give you like 90 day trials. Yeah. I remember the, remember one time we were trying to get into dashboarding and our own firm's dashboarding and clients' dashboarding. And this was back in 2014 or so. And there was lots of good tools out there. But to get things the way you wanted to get them, you literally had to be a programmer. And we had this company called Grow. And I, I don't know if they're still around, but hopefully they are. But they were around, this was back then, There was it was like $500 a month US. And we could have a couple boards or something like that. Yeah. And we carried that app for probably... I don't know, a year and a half, two years, but we never used it. It just kept coming up <laughs> because we wanted to see the way, like our job closure rates and open numbers of jobs because our yeah. project management system couldn't tell us that really easily. And we just realized, is this worth this much money? And we of course said no, and then switched off and then eventually switched off that system. So it's really funny when you find your breaking points. Well, I mean, and I think there's a, there's a nugget of advice there that I, all too often people screw up in this in early days is, hey, this looks really cool. Let's get this. But if you're not ready to dedicate the, the time to implement properly, immediately, it's a waste of money, right? I've known people that do that with $30,000 softwares and a year later that comes up for renewal. It's just like, oh, wow, we never even started the onboarding process on this. So, but the good thing is that the vast majority of these things, it's peanuts. So basically you started off small, you were young, scrappy, experimental, true believers basically figuring this stuff out. When did the, the first kind of framework start to, start to feel pressure and need to change? When was the second stage? What, when, what was the, yeah. the, the leading up to that? Yeah, so if that was the first stage, uh, like chicken with head cut off stage, the second stage was similar in nature but it changed with the number of employees. So I remember first couple years where we started realizing that, okay, now we have people involved. We need to have procedures and the procedures need to be somewhat tight because now we're, we're not managing people, we're guiding people. So when it comes to that, maybe you know five to 20 people, the framework started. But let me tell you, just because they started didn't mean they were any good. They were good for us at the time because they were better than what we had before. Yeah. I think that's the theme that we've learned so much over the years is that what you're building is what you're building for now and in the, the near future. Who could have ever seen COVID and its related effects on the industries and the economies the way it has? You know, no amount of, I mean, having Bill certain Gates, frameworks in place Other than that, no one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's yeah. like, so it's like for this framework stuff, we started, we started, you know, putting procedures in place. We started, we, tr we tried using different tools. I mean, we kind of stuck with, I think this is about the time when we introduced our, our knowledge gathering tool or it's called Guru. And mm -hmm. Guru is interesting because it sits as a Chrome extension or as a web app, but it allows you to have these cards and the cards are for a topic. They can be linked to each other. But the problem is like, if you're not constantly validating them, keeping them up to date, it can be really tough to rely on them. And that's why it's good today and we're still using it. But like any piece of information or knowledge base, you've got to have dedicated people that are that are working on it. And for us, we chose like the culture side of things where people would have a culture of 
updating this if something new came. So while we have lots of work to do in that one, you know, it started really early, which was kind of cool. But we also introduced things like like new roles. So in that second stage, we would we realized we needed an onboarder. Uh, we realized we need someone on the tech team. We realized we needed a uh, sort of assistant CPA. We called them associates. We just realized we needed a lot more support. So that framework building, something that you know we went through, every company goes through when they're first yeah. starting to proceduralize things. And we just learned the hard way about where we stood on things like security and hiring policies and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, it's a natural succession, right? You get to a certain point where you know you can't just turn to the two or three people next to you, divide up labor. You have to start actually dele- designing actual job descriptions and specializing in tasks and, and raising your game in that resort. So anyone who's basically reached that stage knows what that's like. You mentioned security. Let's let's actually stop there for a second. So tell me about the, the struggles and results there, simply because that's always a big concern for anyone anytime the internet's involved, even though I would argue that your office isn't exactly the most secure thing in the world either. <laughs> It's just well, a couple a couple doors to get to the files isn't exactly security. Yeah, this is this is interesting because I think the way that you approach security is deeply rooted in the way that you approach your own life and your own securities. So for us, we are well aware of phishing. We're well aware of trends. We try to keep up on news and we read a lot about this. So we're aware. Just being aware stops you from clicking on weird links and <laughs> which are typically the the largest cause of a lot of a lot of security issues mm-hmm. so we started with education and you might think like why not start with a tech solution well because people are the weakest links in security so you every must time educate yep. so that education is part of our onboarding it's part of our our core approach to security so when it comes to the actual tech solutions we start with a password manager and every single person here uses one pass for all their personal and mm-hmm. work related items. When it comes to how secure is that entry level or that entry passphrase, it's got to be really long. It's got to be many, 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 many words and phrases and really hard to crack. We also, have- which is one great thing that those password managers do. And I use LastPass. Uh, there's another one called Dashlane. It's worth looking at. And the great thing about that is that they also not only store your passwords and share your passwords, but they also generate the super complex 20-digit random sequence, right? So yeah, I, I never worry about, about anyone guessing my password. <laughs> yeah, I, I worry that people default to their default passwords when it's hard to generate it or you're in a rush. So that's why it's really cool in one password to be able to kind of look at an overall audit of reused passwords and, you know, being able to go to people and ask them to change things, remove access. You know, we have a lot of sensitive information and a lot of different tools. And what's really great is that we slice, not slice, but we segregate the access by vault, by customer. So, you know, if someone's working with Jason, only the people that work with Jason have access to Jason's stuff. And by virtue of that, all the passwords are masked. So they couldn't copy them if they wanted to. They could just click and access. And for us, that's great. We know there's possible issues out there, but not for the standard user, which you know might you might clarify us as. And we're happy with that level of, of access control. Good. So, I mean, yeah, big supporter of that company. Now, I'm also going to go back before we move on to the next stage to um, talk about organization just recommend two books. Two books I recommend to entrepreneurs all the time. One is The E-Myth, which uh, is all about systemizing processes in your business. 
The other one is Checklist Manifesto, which is all about building effective checklists to prevent, to reduce cognitive burden on decisions and to basically systemize processes. And if you're looking for a tool to do that, there's a great tool to get started with called Process Street, which lets you build these checklists and also automate them, which is fantastic. So, you know, as you continue to grow, we entered what you call stage three or outgrowing frameworks. So tell me what happened, when that happened, what happened, and how you address those issues. Yeah, I mean, you... Your biggest signals when you're remote are sort of happiness of your team members and the happiness of your customers. Mm-hmm. Maybe that doesn't change over the course of your life, but if you really listen to it, people can tell you a lot about what's wrong. And for us, you know, three, four, five years into it, what we no- started noticing were that the people that were with us for a few years maybe weren't as happy as they were when they joined, or maybe they weren't the right people for the type of company we were building that was growing quite fast. So a combination of those two issues caused a lot of friction and a lot of turnover during those years. And when you look back at it, you realize, hmm, maybe the structure of the role that we built in the initial framework isn't sustainable. It was sustainable for the time, but it's not sustainable now that that initial issue was resolved. So for us, that kind of happened in between like 20 and 40 people. During this time, something really important happened. Uh, We introduced the HR role, Right? Having one person dedicated to HR versus it being one of the partners. We also, when we recreated the work, I remember there was this one time when we came back from, from one of the retreats, we realized that our, our manager role, who sort of oversees a relationship, it needed to be cut down by almost 50% of the responsibilities in order for it to be, resp- like, to be enjoyable by the CPAs. Yeah. It also helped us have other people that had a part of the relationship as well. So just a lot of these things that that you start with, it's okay to change. And that sort of third stage of us redesigning these frameworks and listening and and making these, these framework changes ultimately started working. Now, it wasn't perfect because nothing ever is. But I think in any remote company, people want to see that, sh- that things are changing for the better. And as someone who's in charge of the sort of remote management and responsibility aspects of a company, whoever that is in your company, you've got to listen, right? You've got to, you've got to pay attention. So for this, we also realized that our job management system was completely outdated and we needed yeah. to change absolutely everything about the way we, we, we worked. And one of the biggest complaints we saw in the remote workforce uh, sort of revolution here was that if something wasn't written down and easily accessible, it was like it never happened. And being able to see other people's emails when it relates to a customer was mm-hmm. really important. So some people listening might say, yes, that's why we use this CRM, or this is why we use this email tool or this, these access tools. For or just wine carp and copy everybody and cause a disaster <laughs> in your inbox. Right. By the way, that's, that's right. not scalable, but continue. Yeah, or use like <laughs> Zapier to put something in if there's like a filter or something. Like there's yeah. all kinds of ways to get around it. But there was this one company that, you know, as, as an accountant, you either, either love it or hate it. Um, it's called Carbon, K-A-R-B-O-N. And what they did was they said, look, let's let's have threads and comments on emails. Let's triage your email, like a hospital triages patients that come in. Let's let you assign emails to different pieces of work, let you assign it to different contacts. And for us, that was game-changing because we could now spread information across every piece of work. And while you think that might be a little overkill, it's really important because we probably learned one of the biggest lessons in our growth, which was everything needs to be written down and accessible if you're working on a customer. So from that perspective, Carbon was great but it wasn't a quick implementation. And this is where 
realizing what your limitations are is really important. So we had a, a we had one woman her name was uh, Balkis and she was our operations manager. So she took many months, did a lot of planning, did the migration. And I think if anybody did this part time, it would have been really hard. But she dove in, really owned the process, and then did the pre, during, and post support for the team. So I would say if you are going to introduce major changes to your workflows, have someone ultimately responsible that you trust, is good at their jobs, and is a really good communicator, and the chances of it working are really high. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a major challenge, I think anyone will admit, to onboard new software and trade. And then largely it's because of a couple of, I think, common errors. One is you put too much burden on the end user. There's a certain amount that has to be put on them and there's certain certain amounts that can be simplified away or automated away. And I've found in my practice, the more I can take away the need to remember to do five steps and make it one, the higher the success rate. The second piece is training. You know, a lot of people will just sit there, smile and nod during the presentation and be like, okay, I got that. But until they're, you know, in a live fire environment using with it day, they're using it day in, day out, they don't know if they're using it, if they, if they understand it, right? And they don't, they don't learn it as well as, it, they don't become fluent with it unless they have firsthand experience. So wherever possible, I would always recommend over the shoulder training or remote screen training to basically let them guide the entire process. So show me how you do this, show me how you do that. And they can learn in the live function as opposed to just watching a slide deck or video. Although that said, one of the good things about the world we live in today is there's lots of support videos on everything that exists even stuff not put up by the company just on random YouTube channels. So there's no shortage of resources that exist these days. How do you feel about your workflow? Like, how did you change over the years and what are you using now? Well, you're, uh, you're hitting me at a, at a very particular time point in time. I spent the last couple of years trying to push certain partners to make certain integrations and I finally gave up. So as per our previous discussion, I've mapped out like my master data connection like workflow and that is going to be completely overhauled in the next, in the next couple of years, sorry, next year or so. So to date, we have still a workflow that still worked for the firm when it was, you know, it was, it, we're still at stage two, let's call it, where we have dedicated people. We have dedicated policies. There's not a lot of digital oversight. There's not a lot of digital integration to to ease this and, and automate a lot of it. And I think that what we're really going to see, if you ask me this question in two years, you're going to see a much different company. And then you ask it again, two years later, you'll probably see a much different company again, but that's that's part of the entire journey. So to date, it's been simplification, ownership of certain tasks. So you know, basically specialized and specialization. So Who's in charge of what? How do we make this as simple as possible, get it done? And then how do we, uh, and who's in charge of making sure that deadline happens? And there's a, just a culture of accountability around having everything ready for the client well in advance of when it's due. What's one tool that you can't wait to get rid of? Oh God, they're all in my industry though. And uh, I can't, see, I host another podcast that basically talks about FinTech. So I don't want to start bad mouthing possible guests, but we can talk off here. Yeah, so uh <laughs> People can guess, can guess randomly what that is. All right, so let me turn the questions back on you now. All right, so the next stage you called asynchronous uh, communication. So essentially, uh, stage four, your employees expand somewhere between 40 and 60. What happened there that kind of shook things up again and how did you solve for that? People wanted to do work. They wanted to be independent. And this is where you think about like, what, do you, what is your actual mission in your company? And we didn't have a really great one. And it took a long time to figure it out. A lot of co-creation with the rest of the team, lots of interviews, lots of figuring out what we're all here for. And we ended up on something along the lines of, you know, a great place. It's very long. I probably could read it if you asked me to go grab it. But at the end of the day, it's, it's about 
being a great place to work that has enough buffer to not worry if someone is to leave or not, which means that we can have, you know, backup employees that are that are mm-hmm. here in the wings learning and, and waiting. It means that we've got you know, something that's valuable to customers and it's not just standard stuff we've been doing for so many years. And people want control over their lives. And that's really important, but it's really hard if you're used to making people work at the same times, being in the same rooms, on the same calls. And what we realized is like, we had a culture that was not conducive to people having control over their lives. So what happened in this stage was we were very direct around what asynchronous communication meant to us. So it meant that anything related to a customer or a job or a task that related to live CA that wasn't urgent, it goes in that carbon system. It's a note, it's a mm-hmm. flag, it's a loom video explaining where you're coming from and posting it into a note so that some people can watch it or read it when it's convenient for them. What's really cool is like, this is a movement that is taking shape and a lot of companies are embracing it and there's different stages of it. I don't know where we're at, with it in complete honesty. I know we have work to do on it, but I also realize how important it is because if you're getting constantly dinged in Slack or something or Teams, your mind is not on what it was before. And there's so many studies around how bad that is for you and for work and for concentration and for focused work. And we can really see the difference. So during this one, like we had a new culture emerge where people were respectful and I was probably one of the worst offenders. You know, how easy is it for somebody who's been there the longest next to, you know, Josh and a couple other early employees to just message you on Slack whenever they need something. I started realizing that that was disrespectful and it was going against everything we're trying to build. And I stopped it and I still catch myself sometimes realizing that I shouldn't be slacking people for stuff that could go in a, in a note or a job. And it, it helps. Yeah. So, I mean, you prioritize the communication channels around the priority of the messaging, which makes sense. I will remind people that you can silence Slack on occasion if you especially want to focus on something, but yeah, you need the, you need the priority channel to get through. It's funny because we had similar, a similar journey in our own, in our own company at an early stage where it was, there was one partner in particular who remained nameless, but <laughs> not, not bad, but their way of dealing with things was to kind of just blitz things at certain times, right? But that was terrible for everybody else because you just get like 15 messages in your inbox simultaneously from the same person. And you'd be like, you just be like, come on, like you just, you just literally ruined my day. Like you, you just literally put everything, you just dumped a ton of work on someone's desk. And that just never makes people feel good. And it was a discussion again around, and then that person also had a propensity for booking things same day in Salesforce, which is just never a good thing to think that, okay, this is my day. They get this stuff done and then refresh and like, where did this all come from? So focusing around what the respectful channel was and the methodology for it. And does this have to be in there today? Does it kind of be tomorrow? That did relieve a lot of interpersonal aggravation that was going on. And I think everybody was the better for it. But it's, you're right. It's, it's amazing how it's just because we can ping each other constantly doesn't mean we should ping each other constantly. And we should be, again, respectful of the context for what that is. So we have a similar setup. If it's something that has to be addressed today or rel- relatively urgently, it's Slack. If it's urgent, it has me respond to it, Slack, it's a text. And if it can wait, it goes in Salesforce. And that's that. So it's, uh, it doesn't take much, you know, you just need two or three channels to route, you know, and so people to know, people know where the priorities are. Listening back to that, it's just so clear that to get everybody on the same page, everything revolves around the mission. And asynchronous yeah. communication, when your mission is calmness and a great place to work, is a great link. 
Yeah. But if you don't have a mission that's aligned with this, you're pretty much telling people to work a certain way and the motivation might lack. And honestly, this is a big mental hurdle for a lot of people right now because the concept of asynchronous communication and work is something that is foreign to most businesses, right? Everybody shows up from nine to five, they work in the same place, they get stuff done around the same time. That's a traditional model, right? Now, basically, I put something, I put out something needs to be done. You know, my staff member may choose to work on that at 1130 at night and just knowing, and then basically that as long as it doesn't, that doesn't basically hinder everybody else's workflow, that's fine. But a lot of businesses are having difficulty letting go to that degree. I just had a, a conversation with my best friends the other day about how his boss is insisting on them all coming in two or three days a week now because he likes to see them in the office. And it's like, Frankly, he can do his job 99% of the time outside of the office. There's no need for that. And secondly, like, especially with everything going on with COVID right now, access to childcare is a non-starter for many people. And like it was, it's creating, it's creating family issues. But I mean, if you, if you're literally the, if you're listening to this and you're literally the mindset that you need to see people in the office to make sure they're working, you've got two problems. You got either a people problem where you can't, you know, you can't trust them to do work. If that, in which case that's not something fixable unless you get rid of them. Or you have a, an issue with trust systems which is if you give out work and don't know, don't have some sort of mechanism for monitoring the fact that it gets done or an expectation for when it gets done and confirmation, then you're just putting it out there in the ether and wishing for the best. That's not a business with a process. That's a business that just kind of works on putting out fires nonstop. So clearly, I mean, a lot of what you talked about here was previous to this was a lot about processes and workflows and whatever. You've already built those in. So you have that level of trust. If someone's you know, traveling to, you know, I'll pick on Josh, like I'll talk to him, one time I talked to him when he was in Tel Aviv, it's like, that's a big time shifting difference, right? But he can get his job done. And does it really matter what time of day he gets it done? Sometimes, like Josh and I are on sales and it's not something where you can say, you know what, let's have that call at 10 p.m. at night. That doesn't really make sense. No, so, you're right. So there's definitely ones that you have to respond to the client's need, but if it's independent work, then who cares? Yeah, look, you're bringing a good bridge into the next phase, which is around, so you had these procedures, things must be working, you must trust people. That's not what happened. So for us, going into this next phase, we brought everything back to the drawing board. And it was all based on this idea of there are friction points, and the friction points evolve naturally. So as friction points come up, for us, it was decision-making power. Who has ultimate decision-making power when it comes to things mm. like pricing, quality of work, scope, just general advice? Like who needs to be involved in this sort of thing? And what we've realized is like there's a lot of bottlenecks, not because we plan for them, but because we didn't actively plan for them. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> we, we didn't spend the time where we needed to spend the time. So that's yeah. what my, fa my favorite part of like COVID time is. It has exposed so many cracks because you're breaking things down to basics. What's needed? What do people want to pay for? And how do you do it? Yeah. Not, not the fluff. Yeah. So that's all the extra at. bells and whistles matter less now. So they do. So yeah, you entitled stage five back to the drawing board. So you've gone back to the drawing board several times. What were the, so you've exposed the cracks. How have you been addressing this uh, in general? So one of the things that I really like is that the partner group is working a lot closer than we normally used to work. So there's five partners in the group in areas of people operations, strategy and finance, client accounting services, marketing and branding, and then the CEO role. And we enlisted a corporate coach, a gentleman by the name of Keith Hanna from Step Up Consulting in Calgary. 
And what was really great about Keith is that he's a team coach. He's not an individual coach. So we read that book. Oh, shoot. <laughs> I think it was Bo Campbell, Trillion Dollar Coach from Eric Schmidt. That was a great yeah. book. And he just talked about how training teams has such a great effect on a company. And we all really like love that idea. And what Keith brought was this new lens around what our purpose was, what the mission was, how each of us play into these pillars of responsibilities. And then that translated back to a lot of listening and co-creation. So I think that's probably the second or third time I said the word co-create because uh-huh. we realized like everyone here that chooses to stay as a team member, we're happy that they do this, but we also don't want to build or direct a company that's going in the wrong direction. So one of the things that, that Josh has been doing and some other of the partners, especially Chris and Dave, who, uh, who you know are early employees and Tyler, they're doing a lot of customer interview, or sorry, employee interviews and group interviews and getting as much information as possible about what is and isn't working. And you know, we thought we did this early on, right? We talked to people, but never in a formalized, really deep way where when you start the, this is a quote from Dave McPherson, our strategy and finance partner. He's like, this is the first project that I've engaged or I've embarked on where I have no idea what the outcome is going to be. <laughs> and like, that's pretty deep because you know, it could go any different way, but just listening to some of the results that are coming in after these interviews, we realize we're moving in the right direction, but a lot has to change fundamentally around things like how calendars are booked in. What does free and focused time look like? What does it mean to have a framework of decision-making versus micromanagement of decision-making? He'll pull, like we're right in the middle of this project now, and he's going to be probably pulling on a lot of different strings and then bringing it back and working it through. But I'd say if, if you're in this remote work journey and you think that you're got it all figured out, you really need to ask your team and be incredibly aware of how they feel and then go ask customers as well, because there is definitely stuff that's wrong. And we're finding this out now with a complete open mind. And it's kind of exciting because we get to focus on things like the cash flow planning, the government calculations, mm-hmm. getting stuff done faster, creating variable levels of quality depending on the customer's wants and needs, right? Like there's all kinds of things you can do to create more capacity and to do more for people that paying you more or, you know, value you more. And like, this is a pretty interesting thing we're going through and we're not finished, but I'm very excited about this phase. Well, I mean, it's, you're, you're doing, you're doing your gut check. You're taking a hard look in the mirror, making sure you get everybody's opinion about it and, and reframing the company. So it makes a lot of sense. I mean, here's the thing, and I expected this as much too. I'm sure many people have jumped on this expecting a conversation about tons of technology. If you want that, I've done that conversation a million times over on FinTech Impact. I'll even link it in notes. I think the key takeaway from all of this is that so much of this is about two things. One, corporate culture, as I think you basically very much nailed that. Like It, it comes down to the people you're dealing with and, and making sure that they, they're, they're in line with the goals and values of the firm, but also about the Kaizen approach of constant iteration. And frankly, I, I always, I'm always, I'm always amused by people who think they can design their business once and then leave it in place for 30, 40 years. Yeah, that's, that never happens. Oh, actually, sorry, that does happen and they go bankrupt. So <laughs> that just doesn't work, right? We all evolve and, and business has to evolve too. And if anything, I think I can't remember who said it. It's, you know, when you really look at it, every business owner 
it's not the product or service they sell that is the product or service. It's the business is the product, right? Like that's it. It's the delivery mechanism that truly enables the end sale or service to the client. And if you don't get that right, then it doesn't matter what you deliver because it's going to be terrible. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter how, if you deliver, it's going to be terrible. So there was a couple of overall messages you wanted to kind of hit on. So last kind of words of advice when people are at different stages of transition. Like, Look, it, it, when it comes down to it, we really love accounting and taxes and helping in whatever situation we can with companies. And it means that you know, we pretty much have a, a minimum of about a million dollars in revenue or about a year's worth of cash to work with somebody because we put so many people on a team. We're not a traditional accountant where you get an accountant mm-hmm. and a bookkeeper. It's more like you get two CPAs and a bookkeeper and a payroll person and an accounts payable person and a bunch of tech people and some high-level tax people too. And what through that process has taught us is that companies that take money and their finances really seriously want a service like this. So if we stick with our rigid ways and the things that we've done in the first few years of operating, we're doing them a disservice and we're never going to live up to their expectations. So because we love the product and the business, as you said, we are being disrespectful if we don't change things. So I love the idea of completely scrapping things and trying them from new, having customer you know, discussions around what they value to try to change the relationship up a bit. And to answer your question specifically around like, how do we want to leave this? There's this idea that rigidity kills innovation. And to me, that means like when new things pop up, like new tools, it doesn't mean you have to go try them right away. I think it's easier to do it when Plus you're smaller. Your <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, talk, you're pretty much the one person I know in this world that will try everything <laughs> uh, at least once. But but for us, there there is a real cost. And we still don't have a dedicated person trying these things. We don't have a Jason in our team that will go out and try these things. We want to but there is a cost, right? It's at the expense of something. You're right. We focused on the culture, which was really important. This is an interesting one. We actually stopped doing in-person retreats when travel was allowed because the extra money that they caught, we had some retreats that costed 150 grand. The reason why we stopped was because that money was better put into things like regional meetups, not forcing people that had family lives and other commitments to leave their place to be able to come out to us. We realized that that choice was really important. So reinvesting that in other things was was better for the company and we we listened to that messaging. Yeah, no one likes to be forced to attend something because their boss says they have to, right? Like that's, can't tell you how many times that's the message, you know, like, well, I gotta go because, you know, I suppose I'm expected to. So, and actually, you know, you hit on a a key point here. So one of the, the things that I think is very new to the world in general is how do you build that corporate culture in general when you're not meeting face to face on a regular basis? So what are kind of the best practices for, for building the kind of team that you want when we're semi limited in how we communicate? For us, it starts in the hiring process. So we've done lots of presentations and stuff. And so on, on our press page at liveca.ca, there's some links to YouTube videos and things like that where we've gone through like a whole hour deep dive into what we've done for hiring remotely. The Cole's notes on that one is involve many people and have an objective framework so that you can test people in an objective way. We bring people in for two days remotely to see what it's like to work with them. They get to meet certain members of the team. They go through a course that we designed, and it really gives them an idea of how we think about training, how we think about our team members, how important culture is, 
and it gives them an opportunity to think about how they can contribute in making that culture better. After training, the onboarding piece is important. So Chris Frame and Brianna on the HR team, they are incredible at dealing with onboarding. And what they've learned is that you know, a lot of education, having buddy systems in place, having check-ins, having a robust checklist of things to do during probationary periods, they can set the tone for the culture right off the very bat. And then throughout, having discussions and group meetings and you know, education sessions, they're all what every, every company is doing stuff like that. But I think what's special here is that everyone is willing and able to help. And if someone poses a question, it's not like, oh, this is my job. I need to po- I need to help someone out here. It's more like, oh, I really hate that this person's struggling. I want to help. And I think that's what I'm most surprised to see, even after all these years, is that people are here for the community, not because they love accounting. And that's what makes it really special. Yeah. There's lots of firms that work for uh, work at, uh, as if you're an accountant, and uh, finding one you love to work at and has that kind of team mentality is probably more rare than not, unfortunately. Especially if you're talking about the big ones. <laughs> yeah, look, there's there's a lot of turnover, and yep. there's a lot of you know e- even now there's there's a lot of messaging out around layoffs and in, in, in big firms, especially in the auditing departments and some internal admin teams. It's the reality we live in these days that there's going to be layoffs, but knock on wood, we haven't laid off a single person so far during COVID. We've, we've hired eight people since March, and mm-hmm. our goal is not to be filthy rich during this. It's to protect people's jobs and to give them the support to be able to do the work that they can do well. And that ultimately turns into good, valuable work that people are willing to pay for as a customer. Excellent. Well, Chad, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to take us through your journey. And I'm sure there's something relatable for just about every business, given the different stages of your evolution we went through. And again, you know, the tools are valuable. You can find tools. Again, I'll link one of my podcasts on this. In addition to that, Google is your best friend. I need a solution for X. Easy to find this stuff. You can find reviews on Captera, but so much of it comes down to the culture and the framework for constantly going back to the drawing board and making the actual widget better. Where can people find you? Our website has every piece of information you'd ever need. Uh, liveca.ca, so it's L-I-V-E-C-A.ca. And there's lots of videos, lots of um, examples of case studies of what we've done with other customers and um, just a general form to fill out if you'd like to chat. Thank you for that and those lessons. Thanks, Jason. It was a pleasure. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Chad Davis about enabling your remote work. And I hope you found that informative and you took away a number of insights, specifically that it really comes down to people, organization, and enabling the people that you basically employ. And with that, as always, I'm Jason Pereira. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on iTunes, Stitcher, or visit your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.